The text for our sermon this morning is in Luke 9, so I invite you to find Luke 9 if you've got your Bible with you. My name is Matt, and I want to welcome you to Prairie Hill, whether you're a regular or just uh, popping in for the first time. Maybe you're watching online. If you're watching online, uh, hello, good morning. Um, We're in the process of going through the Gospel of Luke. The plan right now, uh, Lord willing, is to... um, finish Luke 10 before Christmas season and give our attention to Christmas themes uh, during Advent season. But right now we're um, right in a really, um, this is a really critical point in the gospel of Luke. Um, most scholars who specialize in Luke say the, the, the pivotal point is Luke 9 verse 51, which is actually part of our text today. We're going to start in verse 43, go through verse 56. So um, really important stuff uh, here. And, and if you are just joining us, the, the one word of introduction I want to give you is that we're studying the whole gospel of Luke under the framework of the question, what is the kingdom of God like? What does it mean for us to live as Jesus' disciples in the kingdom of God? Like, we're, we're coming in fully recognizing we have a lot of work to do and figuring out what that means and what the kingdom of God even is. And so, bit by bit, we're going through the gospel of Luke, um, grasping what we can week by week uh, to be better conformed to Jesus' um, person and life. And as far as today goes, um, I'm not going to say anything more by way of introduction. If you are um, a disciple of Jesus, there's some tough stuff ahead of us this morning, okay? Um, we're going to see some, some pretty hard but needed instruction from the Lord Jesus. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you have no interests, um, the one, the one thing that I hope you get at a, at a minimum is that you come away from today with um, a real awareness that people who claim Jesus really do want to represent him well. That that actually matters. That hypocrisy not be something that we're guilty of. And so because that matters, we spend time looking into the scripture to see what Jesus is actually like and trusting the Holy Spirit to do the work of conforming our hearts to his life by the power of the word, the transformational power of the word. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, I hope you're at least thinking, wow, They really care about representing him well. I'm I'm not exactly sure about everything they were talking about, but obviously because they gave attention to it, it matters. And um, that's what we're going to do today. So let's read the text first. I'll start in verse 43. We'll go through verse 56. If you're able to stand, um, I invite you to stand for the reading of the word um, in honor of the Lord. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. An argument arose among them. So this is Jesus' disciples. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. 
John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Well, Lord, here we are. Um, We're doing our best to lay our hearts open to you. We... We wish we could bring you more. We wish we brought more to the table in terms of fervency and urgency in worship, in terms of faithfulness, in terms of holiness. But we don't. But we are here, and our eyes are on you, and we we would give Jesus more of what he deserves, this great redeemer, savior of mankind, our personal, personal savior. And so I ask that you would do a a great work during this time and apply your word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. And we ask in his holy name, amen. All right, please be seated. What we see presenting itself in this passage is what it looks like when disciples of Jesus are not shaped by the cross. There are three different episodes. What we see in summary is what it looks like when disciples of Jesus have not been shaped by the cross. We see lots of um, human nature cropping up, and we see lots of common sense popping up, and we see lots of sinful desires popping up. We see lots of religious zeal taking off and presenting itself. What we see is what we all look like and do when we have not been discipled by the cross. All right, well, what what do... What are we talking about? What do we see in particular from the disciples? Well, we see three things from them. We'll just give a label to each of these three accounts, these three different situations we read about. The first thing we see from them is comparison. That's verses 46 through 48. They're tempted toward comparison among themselves. They're asking the question, this is verse 46, asking the question, who among us is the greatest? An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. Would have loved to hear what those arguments were like. And we can identify, can't we? It's almost, it's almost like our hearts just feed on being able to say, I'm better than that person at, at that. It's almost like our, that nourishes our our fleshly heart, to be able to say, I'm better than this other person at this. Comparison is so entrenched in our nature. And you know the feeling really well. Um, 
if in a church setting or a ministry setting you find yourself, you ever found yourself sitting there wanting to have the best and wisest answer at a Bible study? And maybe, maybe you don't offer your answer because you're not sure if it's, if it's good or if it's as good as someone else's. Or comparing the meal that you plan and serve with what was planned and served the week before or what comes after and looking back and saying, you know, I really did a lot better than this person. And you know the feeling really well, this comparison feeling we're talking about if you sit and listen to someone teach and while they're teaching, instead of absorbing what's, what's being taught and thinking about applying it in repentance, the, the, the dominant thought in your mind is either, boy, I could do a lot better than this or, boy, this person is a lot better than I would be. See, that, that's all comparison. And some of us look at pictures of other people and we read their, their bios and we, and we read about their achievements and their gifts. You know, we see this online all the time and we, we sit and we look at these things and say, I wish I could be like that. And maybe you get down on yourself because you don't look like that or haven't achieved that. You're not on this track and you don't have this accomplishment. Do we ever really stop comparing ourselves to others? Do we ever really stop asking the question, who is the greatest? The, the cycle of comparison, you know, we, we all know this, the cycle of comparison is not life-giving, it's life-robbing. It's not the way of a disciple of Jesus. Is there, any, is there anything that the cross can teach us to help us with that? Yeah, there is. We're gonna get there in a few minutes, okay? The cross can help us with that problem, and we'll get there. Right now, we're just noticing all of the problems, okay, of which comparison is the first. That's pretty easy to identify with. What's the second one? What comes across in this second account, this matter of the unnamed person, Casting out a demon in Jesus' name, we could, we could say, and I'm looking at verses 49 and 50, if, if comparison was the first problem, the second problem is exclusion. That's what comes across in verses 49 and 50. The disciples are tempted toward excluding a partner in ministry. John is speaking for the whole group. And he notes that it was their desire that this person who was doing ministry in Jesus' name not be allowed to continue, that this person be excluded from the ministry on the basis of the fact that they were not part of the traveling party of Jesus' disciples. That what the text actually says is we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. He's not part of our group that's traveling around together. So John and the others are drawing a line, aren't they? They're drawing their own line. This is what it takes to be an acceptable minister. You have to be part of our group. It's not a line that Jesus has drawn. It's their line. And Jesus tells them what he thinks of their line. And right now, like I said, we're not looking at solutions. We're just identifying with the problem. So we take time to ask ourselves if we are displaying the same kind of un, 
disciplined, unchristlike, not of the cross, exclusion of others. And I think a lot of us can probably identify with both sides of this, both being the ones who are doing the excluding and the ones being excluded. As far as being excluded goes, there aren't many things that feel worse than walking into a church and feeling like you don't measure up. Probably the only thing worse than that is being told that you don't measure up. And probably the only thing worse than that is being shown in lots of subtle ways that you don't measure up. And no one ever actually comes out and says it to you. They just keep hoping you get the hint by all the subtle things that they do. We have lines for each other. It makes us feel better about ourselves that you can, if you're able to look at this other person and say, if you, if you don't meet this line that I have for you regarding how you dress at church or what Bible translation you use, your view of the end times, if you don't meet this line that I have drawn for you regarding who you vote for, how often you come to church, how you spend your free time, how you prep food in the kitchen, how you pray, what your prayers are like. If you don't meet that bar, then it's my job to make sure you know that you are not part of this really holy club. that you are on the outside looking in. That's basically what John and the others wanted this person to know, that even though they were doing the same thing that the disciples were doing, casting out a demon, even though they were doing the same ministry and doing it in the name of Jesus, based on the arbitrary bar that they'd set up, this person was on the outside. They were not one of them. So please ask yourself, I mean, this is such an important issue, it's worth taking the time for me to just put this question in front of you. Are you, are you in this body, among your group, are you working to make sure that someone else knows that they're on the outside? That they're not part of your group? That they're not where you are? I, I have done that. that. I have been that person in my life. I've been the worst kind of that person that tries to get people to understand that in really subtle ways, to not come out and tell them, but just to use subtleties to say, you you don't meet this bar I have for you. You may come here, but this is the inside and you're on the outside. I'm just saying that that's been me to my own shame. And all we're saying right now is that this matter of exclusion based on a false standard, that's the key idea. Exclusion based on a false standard, one that we set up, shows that we have not been discipled by the cross. And we'll talk about how the cross speaks to that problem too in just a minute, okay? There's one more ugliness to see first. So we've talked about 
comparison. We've talked about exclusion. Um, there's one, one more thing, one more ugliness, I'm calling it, to see. It's really the culmination of everything that's come before. If, if those things go unchecked, this comparison and exclusion, if those things go unchecked, this last one is destruction. Destruction of the one on the outside. That's verses 52 through 56. They want to call down fire to destroy the people on the outside, their opponents, the Samaritans, people who have not yet believed in Jesus, people who are actively opposed to him. They, they want those people to be destroyed, okay? So listen, this is what I'd like to take time to notice with you, looking at this whole set of three, comparison, exclusion, destruction. What we want to notice about comparison and then exclusion and then destruction is that these are not three unrelated things. Within comparison lies the seed of exclusion. And within exclusion lies the seed of destruction. We compare ourselves to others in order to exclude. And we exclude and eventually want to destroy those on the outside because we come to see them as a a threat. They're a threat to the, the perfect, holy way that we occupy and are trying to protect Comparison, exclusion, destruction. Comparison, exclusion, destruction. This is anti-discipleship. This is humans asking Jesus to follow us rather than us following him. In fact, that exact thing happens twice in this passage where humans want Jesus to give sanction and sign off on what they want to do. Isn't this okay? Jesus, we told this guy to stop, right? Wasn't that the right thing to do? No, that wasn't the right thing to do. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire and destroy these people? Isn't that what you want us to do? No, that's not what I want you to do. They're hoping to lead him down that path. That's anti-discipleship. That's us discipling Jesus. (laughs) Discipleship in reverse. So ask yourself, if comparison and exclusion and destruction are more and more occupying your mind and your worldview, if you're taking that kind of an outlook toward other people, comparison, exclusion, destruction, if if that's your MO right now, if that's the world you're living in, that is not of the cross. That is you trying to disciple Jesus. That mindset draws a rebuke from him. That's verse 55. So in contrast to all of that ugliness that we just talked about, in contrast to these distracted disciples who are on this long natural slide down the course of human pride and insecurity, in contrast to all of those things is Jesus, Jesus whose entire focus is the cross. He is riveted to the cross. That is the great contrast here. 
that the disciples are running around like loose cannons. All this fleshly stuff is coming out of them. And then in comparison, in contrast, here's Jesus, who is absolutely riveted to the cross. And that that comes to us three times in this passage. First of all, it's in verse 44. I meant, to, I meant to read this. I, I didn't start at the right place. I meant to start at verse 43, but go back and look at verse 43. And Jesus has just cast out the demon. And while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, so while everyone else was really excited about Jesus' ministry, Jesus, on the other hand, said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's the first reference to the cross. Everyone's excited about this. Jesus wants to draw their attention to the cross. It comes through again in verse, um, excuse me, verse 51. Luke's way of putting, putting it is that his face was set toward Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The cross is in Jerusalem. That's where his face was set. The cross is his aim. The cross is what he's walking toward. The cross is why he came. The cross is what he wants his disciples to focus on. It's his cross that will save them. It's his cross that they will preach about when he's gone. So we read this two times, both in verse 51 and verse 53, that his face was set toward Jerusalem, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. How many of our problems in the body of Christ stem from a failure to feed on and learn from the cross? What more could Jesus do or say than to look directly at his disciples and say, let these words sink into your Years, Or your translation might say, listen very carefully. Did you know that the cross of Jesus addresses all three of these problems that we've been talking about? Comparison, exclusion, destruction. The cross addresses all of those things. It gives us three different words, three discipleship words. This is what discipleship looks like three different ideas, three other things. And what I want to do to finish up here is to share these three words with you and look at the cross with you and be formed and discipled by the cross of Jesus. We want to be people of the cross, people who love and have learned from the cross. three words that identify us as people of the cross. The first one is declaration. Not comparison, declaration. This is a cross word. The first word, declaration, is what the cross gives us to counter our tendency to compare ourselves to others. The cross of Jesus Christ makes a declaration over you. Two declarations, as a matter of fact. Jesus' cross makes a declaration over you. Here's the first one. You are completely helpless. 
Do you want to know who you are? You know, the reason why we compare ourselves to each other is because we're all asking the question, who am I? The cross says none of that. The cross declares who we are. And here's the first declaration. You are completely helpless. Do you want to know how bad your sinfulness is? How deep it is? You know, sometimes it's hard to know how offensive our sin is. God doesn't always punish our sin immediately. Sometimes you may feel like you haven't been punished at all. Sometimes it's really hard to know how offensive our sinfulness is to God. Well, we can find out by looking at the cross. Our sinfulness is so offensive and so deep that the only acceptable payment for it was blood of infinite value. The Father's eternal and perfect and beloved Son had to take a human body and put himself in your place and die for you because no amount of good works And no amount of good behavior could have paid the necessary price to make you acceptable to God. Only a sacrifice of infinite value could pay for sin of infinite offensiveness. The same price was paid for us all. Do you know what that means? means that we're all completely helpless. No one's life required a different level of sacrifice to atone for their sins. The same price was paid for us all. We're all completely helpless before God. That's declaration number one. Declaration number two. Declaration one is you are completely helpless. Declaration number two is you are completely loved. Because in love, the Father was willing to pay that price for you. That's Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No greater demonstration of love could ever be made for you than the giving of an only son, a perfect son who had done no wrong to a slow and tortured death. That was done for you. I want you to understand and think about this, that God did not do this for a friend. God the Father did not give up his son for a friend. God gave up his son for an enemy. He loved you while you were still a sinner, still offensive to him. Do you know what that means? It means that you can never get out of his love because you never did anything to merit his love in the first place. Isn't that wonderful? God gave his son for you when you were an active enemy of God. Do you want to know who you are? 
the old way, the anti-discipleship way, to try to figure out who you are is to compare yourself to everyone around you and try to figure out who's the greatest. The new way, the discipleship way, is to look at the cross and understand I am completely helpless and I am completely loved and so is everyone else in this body. There's no distinction at all. The person sitting to your left and to your right, exact same as you, no difference. Same price paid for their sin, God does not love them any more or any less than he loves you. We are all on equal footing because of the cross, rendering the question, who among us is the greatest, as a ridiculous thing. You are completely helpless and completely loved, and that's it. I'm no more loved than you are because I'm a pastor. I'm completely helpless and I'm completely loved. And so are you. And I wanted to take the most time on this one because it's the most, it's the foundational one because it sets the stage and lays the foundation for how we treat each other when we know who we are. The cross makes a declaration about you, doesn't invite comparison. Second word, you can probably guess it, instead of talking about exclusion, we we talk about inclusion. Inclusion is a discipleship word. Not exclusion, but inclusion. Jesus commands the gracious inclusion of this individual who's doing ministry in his name. And I I just want to say two things about this, one practical and one more theological, okay, about this idea of the gracious inclusion of, of fellow believers who may not do everything the same as you. Two things, one practical and one theological. Practically, and this one comes with the most obvious application to our lives and our practices. It's really important to know and understand that what Jesus is against here is the setting up of a false standard as a a bar that other believers have to meet. That's what's being rejected, is a false standard for other people. One that we set up ourselves. Jesus rejects that. He didn't set up that bar. The disciples wanted that bar, okay? So that's what's being rejected. What Jesus is not rejecting is holding to the true standard. There is a true standard. There is the standard of God's word, which tells us that actually, you know what? There is a time to exclude other believers. Paul writes about a lot of situations where that comes up. Don't have this person among you anymore. Separate yourselves from this person who's causing division or who's a false teacher or all these, all these things. So practically speaking, that's what we have to recognize. There, there is a time to exclude, but that's holding to the true standard of God's word, not setting up a false standard that just makes us feel better, okay? I hope, I hope that difference is, is understandable. There's more that could be said about that. That's, that's on the practical side. Theologically, this is, this is what we learn by looking at the cross about this issue, of inclusion, okay? Think about this. You know, the the fellowship within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
was and is perfect. Perfect fellowship among the three persons of the Trinity. God paid an infinite price to include me, imperfect me, in that fellowship. Does that sound like gracious inclusion to you? All I bring to the table is unfaithfulness, sin, ingratitude, all of those things. And yet, God paid an infinite price to open the fellowship wider and include someone like me. That is what we find out at the cross. And why would God pay a price to include me and include you in the fellowship of the Trinity that John writes about in 1 John? The joy of that fellowship among the members of the Trinity that we have been included in. The cross models, this is what I'm saying, is that the cross models the gracious inclusion of the one who really can't add anything except liability. the one who is not perfect, the one who does not measure up to the moral standard of the other members. It models the gracious inclusion of the one who does not meet the moral standard of the others. I am not as holy as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of course, but the way has been opened for me. God's gracious inclusion of the one who isn't as holy. And he brings us in, makes us holy by his Son, and brings us in. So, therefore, who are we to set up these bars for each other and say, I'm not going to give you full inclusion in my club because you're not meeting this standard when God has done that for us? Okay? You get the point. Declaration, inclusion, the last word is uh, very simply salvation. Not destruction, salvation. This is the question, like, what do we want for our enemies? What do we want? What is your goal for your, the people who you consider your opponents? The people you know in your life who they don't like the church, they don't like Jesus, they want nothing to do with God, they're, they're anti-God. What's your goal for them? Are you praying for them? You know, what if, what if John and James said, hey, those people back there, they don't want us to come into their town. What if they had said, should we pray for them? Instead of, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven to consume them? They, they wanted immediate death for their opponents. That's anti-discipleship. But Jesus, so here's the counterpoint. Jesus, cross-focused, says, no, I, I don't want them to die. I don't want them to head to a Christless eternity. Instead, I am willing to die. I am willing to be myself destroyed so that they might live. Because don't forget, post-resurrection, some of these disciples are going right back to Samaria. So regarding our opponents, rather than see them destroyed, we are willing ourselves to die if necessary so that they might know the Savior. You know that our souls are secure forever. that we must more readily embrace our own death than the death of one who is in opposition to Christ.
So there it is, brothers and sisters. Human nature is leading us toward comparison, exclusion, and destruction. Jesus and his cross lead us toward declaration, inclusion, and salvation. And um, this is the very last thing. My greatest hope for you is that you would allow yourself to be discipled by the cross. There are, are so many so many people and philosophies looking to lead you right down the path that they have charted out for you. And my greatest hope for you is that you would submit every idea and every philosophy to the cross and let yourself be discipled by Jesus and his cross. I'm not even wanting you or asking you to be discipled by me. Don't take me as your discipler. I'm asking you to be discipled by the cross. Bonhoeffer said, the cross is not the end of the path for the Christian. The cross isn't something we walk toward and eventually might see in old age or in death. Rather, the cross meets us at the beginning. Remember the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's a beginning thing. And our great, our great shame, not to pile on here, but to inspire you, not to pile on you, but to inspire you, our great shame is that we have so readily taken the cross for salvation and not for instruction. And so we're carried off by every thing that blows in the wind and we live as loose cannons and we don't represent the Savior well. We must be discipled. We must be people of the cross or else we have no fellowship with the cross or the Savior that there died. Amen. Father, I I pray for everyone listening that if they've embraced the cross, if they've embraced the Savior on the cross, Jesus Christ, that today they would love the cross and take it as their teacher. I pray for myself that I would more readily take the cross as my teacher. And I pray for those who have not received Jesus and embraced his cross, that today that would change that the good news would resonate with them that they couldn't be more helpless and they could not be more loved in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that everything would be laid down and cast aside and every sin and all fears and all anxiety to simply go to Jesus and his cross and say, thank you, I receive you. And let the overwhelming, unbelievable love, complete love of Jesus Christ flood their life with light. For his wonderful sake, amen.